Brexit, the weather's changed. In the two days leading up to the Leave victory in June 2016, Twitter accounts based in Russia posted almost 45,000 messages about Brexit, most of them anti-EU. The next day, most went silent. The research by the University of California, Berkeley and Britain's Swansea University shows the accounts had not previously been involved in the Brexit debate. Britain's Electoral Commission and a committee of lawmakers have launched separate investigations as the new evidence emerges. Russia is interfering and it is doing so to try and undermine public confidence in political institutions and in the mainstream media in Western countries. And we have to regard the spread of fake news propagated by fake accounts across Twitter and Facebook in this way as a real threat to our democracy. For many years now, it has been clear that certain states around the world have harnessed digital technologies and platforms for rather nefarious purposes, initially used domestically and against their own citizens. But then they honed their skills and deployed this internationally against other countries, as our opening clip illustrated. Indeed, the threats from the mass weaponization and proliferation of disinformation combined with heightened state-sponsored cyber-attacks, threatens the very foundations of democratic civilization. So what can be done when the very technology that was developed to bring the world closer together is turned against us to try and tear it apart? Today's question is, what is this digital authoritarianism? Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the biggest problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me as ever is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yi. Now, my guest today is the rather brilliant Andrea Little Limbargo. Andrea is a computational social scientist specializing in the intersection of emerging technology national security and information security. As the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos, Andrea leads the company's computational modeling and methodology regarding global supply chain risk. Andrea is also a co-program director for the Emerging Tech and Cybersecurity Program at the National Security Institute at George Mason. Her writing has been featured in numerous outlets, including Political, The Hill, Business Insider, War on the Rocks, and Forbes. She also taught in academia and was a technical lead at the Joint Warfare Analysis Center, where she earned the command's top award for technical excellence. Andrea earned a PhD in political science from the University of Colorado at Boulder. So I'd like to welcome Andrea to the great indoors today. So I'd like to welcome our guest to the great indoors today, Andrea Little Limbargo. Andrea, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, But before we get into it, just tell our listeners, where are you enjoying the great indoors today? Yeah, I'm currently in Northern Virginia, where it's actually pretty chilly for uh, the time of year, but um, enjoying the area. Have you had any snow? 
because it's uh, unseasonably cold right in the northeast yeah no thankfully but it's been bitter cold yeah it is it is well spring will be with us soon hopefully hopefully now one thing i've been asking all our guests and this is quite amusing it's a nice light-hearted start to the uh, conversation um but if you could choose uh, your entrance music a song to introduce you as we get going what would that song be andrea oh gosh um you know, honestly, it, it, it depends on the, on the day and the mood, I, I would imagine. You know, sometimes I think it might be Welcome to the Jungle. I feel like that every day. I feel like that's my entrance music every morning I wake up. Okay, brilliant. So that's great. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background, um, Andrea, and your work at um, Interos, because I think it's fascinating. This is a subject I've really wanted to, to dig into uh, for quite some time. So give our listeners a bit of a, a quick bio of yourself, a quick history of, of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. And for sure, is a circuitous route. So for anyone who thinks that you know, the careers are a straight line, uh, mine for sure has not done that. Uh, I started off wanting to be a professor in academia, and so I have a PhD in political science and did a lot of quantitative analytics then on national security and economic interdependence, and all that will come back full loop. You'll see it, yeah. what I'm doing now. Uh, and then I spent some time at the Department of Defense in government uh, doing a lot of computational modeling during that time. And then after that, about a decade in cybersecurity at various cybersecurity startups and applying a lot of the, the social science along with the technology, along with the, the geopolitics. And all of those basically have come together into one position where I am at Enteros now, which is a supply chain risk uh, company. And I lead the team that models the full range of supply chain risks. Awesome. Awesome. And this is why I think it's, it's so interesting and such a contemporary topic here, obviously, with, with everything that's happened. But literally in, in the decade, I think in, in the last decade, there's been huge shocks to the supply chain. One of them was Trump's... Um, trade wars, if you will. The second one was the pandemic, which we've covered extensively, obviously, on this pandemic, where basically the supply chain globally stopped, right? And and then the third one recently is, unfortunately, the war in um, Ukraine, which obviously is the breadbasket of Europe and, and all the commodities that, um, that come out of, of Russia and, and that region. But tell us, if you will, um, Andrew, why these three shocks, why, why we've seen such disruption to our supply chain um, and why that's such a problem uh, for the whole globe right now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a great point. And I love the framing of those. I, you know, I look at those a lot as, as the big exogenous shocks uh, of the time that have impacted the supply chains because you know, really for the better part of 50 years, what we saw happening was a lot of interdependence coming together of, you know, both of the economies across the globe, and then you couple that with a hyper-specialization and a really big push towards just-in-time production, which basically led to these super complex, um, super opaque, and in many cases, very insecure supply chains across the globe. And that just continued to just amplify and accelerate. And then what we saw with the, the trade wars was really the, the insertion of geopolitics uh, into that. And that was then coupled with, you know, are followed by the pandemic, and that's, I actually really look at 2020 as that cutoff point uh, of where we started seeing 
different shocks occurring and the, the main disruptions going on that where we're looking ahead, you know, that, that what was before 2020 is really not what we see going forward. Uh, it's basically before times and, and after times uh, from 2020. And unfortunately, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, is really indicative of a lot of the instability and sort of this you know, transition in, in mentality as far as how geopolitics and economics come together. Mm-hmm. No, and I think it's I, I think it's really interesting because obviously your job is to look at potential risks to supply chains, right, Andrea, and, and anticipate them. But the one thing that I noticed recently was your article published in the National Security Institute about um, digital authoritarianism. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and what constitutes digital authoritarianism. Yeah, no, thanks for that question, because it is something I've been tracking for several years now. And uh, it's really how I look at what the modern adversary playbook is, you think about in, in sort of the geopolitical terms, but it's really that the use by governments, and then largely authoritarian, but I will say increasingly democratic governments are uh, adopting some of the tactics and techniques, but it's really the, the use generally by authoritarian governments of the internet and various kinds of digital technologies to manipulate, survey, repress, uh, and really control the dialogue, initially you know, within their own population. But what they've started doing is basically running almost a test run domestically and then applying a lot of those tactics and techniques globally. And it's, I think it's important to point that it's not just dis, uh, disinformation alone, and disinformation itself actually you know, comprises of a lot of different tactics. But it's the integration of, of leveraging disinformation for you know, really the, the controlling that aspect of the narrative, but in combination with cyber attacks and then in combination with uh, various kinds of technologies and automation to enable the, the global reach of both the attacks and the disinformation, but then also really tactical targeting. And I think that's what makes it so dangerous in many ways is that leveraging a lot of the same technologies enable really widespread impact, but then also really, really super select targeting. You, you can think about you know, some of those really micro-targeting ads, for instance, in social media. You know, that's leveraging the same kind of targeting that the authoritarian regimes will use when they're trying to really implement a various kinds of disinformation and then also looking for you know, vulnerabilities for cyber attacks. Because the way I, I think that's brilliant, the way I look at it is... Cybersecurity, or when we used to talk about cybersecurity in this industry, was always about uh, some nefarious individual breaking in, stealing something, and then the IT security firms were there to try and block them or detect them and and stop them entering. But a, a large part of digital authoritarianism, right, Andrea, is almost state sponsored proliferation of disinformation. And it's something that's a little bit more secretive, something that's a little bit more sinister. But it's been happening for some time, right, that various governments around the world have decided to interfere, like you said, not just with their domestic societies, but the populations and societies in other, uh, in other nations. Can you give an example of uh, where there's clear-cut evidence of this kind of digital authoritarianism? prior to the recent crisis in Ukraine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, unfortunately, we're seeing all of it coming together uh, in the current crisis in Ukraine. But you know, a lot of it goes back. You know, we, we think about it as fairly new, but it's been going on for at least a decade. Some of you say two decades, depending on what aspects of it. Uh, but I think a good example, even just a decade ago, what China was doing domestically with, with, during a train wreck in around 2010, 2011, uh, was doing something called astroturfing, 
by, it's basically a form of censorship. And that's again, where some of the disinformation, so it's a censorship by pushing out so much information into various social media outlets that the truth can't surface to the top. And so that's again, that, that's how it, that becomes a, a source of disinformation because it's, it's, a, it's not enabling the truth to come to the top. And that I think is a good example of sort of the applying it to the domestic societies first before globally. But then you start seeing you know, all sorts of different um, activity going on. And you know, in the US, the Department of Justice has had indictments against various members and against the, um, the, the Russian groups for their election interference during the 2016 elections. And those you know, resulted actually in indictments. And those are really actually very well laid out uh, from a legal perspective. But we see it really, I mean, to your point on, it's not just you know, the Russias and the Chinas of the world. Iran has been caught with dis disinformation campaigns you know, Philippines, uh, Duterte has you know, mastered a lot of the various aspects of disinformation, largely against uh, his own population. And that's what makes so much of it dangerous is that you know, because of the asymmetric nature of a lot of these tactics, even smaller and less resourced governments ha can have a really oversized impact leveraging these kind of tactics. And so it doesn't, just because China and Russia may have started uh, and really honed a lot of these skills, smaller governments with less resources are able to leapfrog and apply a lot of the same tactics. Uh, because mm. of the, that, that you know, there's no longer that resource gap, and and yeah, and I mean, even if you read the recent Russia report from the um, the British government, and there's clear acknowledgement of the interference of Russia in Brexit, but the only issue is they can't quantify the extent. They know it was prevalent, but the the ability to say, well, it actually created this much of an impact is it's impossible, right, to try and quantify at this stage. Yeah, you know, I think on the one hand, it is very, very hard unless you were to go and ask everyone if by reading you know, these exact pages, did it change your mind, right? Yeah, and they'll never, and they'll never admit it did. Oh, yeah, exactly. It and yeah. People are going to be disinclined to actually admit that. It's the same thing as, you know, if you tell your dentist that you flossed every day. You know, so they're, yeah. they're going to give the answer that, that you know, they think you want to hear. But at the same time, I mean, so there is a lot of really interesting academic work going on in the disinformation space that... I'd say it was not there a decade ago, and they are looking at ways to quantify the impact. And you can start looking at both by, you know, say, user behavior on, on where they're going within social media outlets. Uh, you can look at these sort of the click rates and those kind of things that can help get at some level. So I, I don't think you'll ever get to the point where you're 100% certain. But you know, when you're dealing with humans, social science is never going to be 100% certain. There's always going to be that those yeah. room for errors. But it'll get you very far along to understand what's going on and understand how it did impact behavior. This is a personal example, and I, I thought about this the other day, um, and I thought I would bring it up. I, I don't know if you've heard of this, Andrew, but on Twitter in particular, there is a lot of bots. There are a lot of bots that are obviously automated, just there to antagonize and create disruption and, and, and everything. And whenever I was on Twitter, I've limited my amount on, on Twitter now because it is like high school on steroids, isn't it, in many respects. But I, whenever I suspected I was up against a bot, they were easily to spot, easy to spot because their profile was like at John, and then there'd be like 11 digits uh, after it. They were quite easy to spot. And then they became more sophisticated and started giving them real names and more, more authentic profiles. And then I figured out 
how to stop the bots was if you asked them what time it was, where they were, because again, they were masquerading that they were in the United States or in the United Kingdom when actually they were somewhere else in the world. If you asked them what the time was, where they were, it would just shut them down. Uh, and I always thought that was quite clever until obviously they they figured out a workaround and then <laughs> and then they, <laughs> then they would tell you uh, the time where it was. But that that was some of my own experience. But which country on the planet has a been most affected by digital authoritarianism, and secondly, is leading in the fight against it? Yeah, you know, there's a couple different ways to think about that. On the one hand, you know, I, I'd argue that. Chinese and Russian societies have been the most impacted directly by their governments. And so I, I think that is more on the, the localized level. But as far as the foreign influence, I mean, the U.S. has been impacted a lot. Uh, I'd say Western Europe as well. Uh, but then you also, what's you know, interesting is that, you know, that they are definitely customized for the various audiences. And, you know, Australia, you know, folks in Australia, we tell you just how big the disinformation campaign is targeting them from China and the various use of, of WhatsApp and some of the other messaging services there and how those are, are huge platforms for disinformation. And so I, I think it's hard to say which one, unless you want to start looking at really the, you know, impacting various outcomes, such as Brexit, uh, for instance, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's tough to argue on that one. But it really, and it's ongoing, the targeting remains you know, very much so uh, continue to advance, like to your point on the bots. It was very similar to on in phishing, where it did used to be you know, very easy to spot. It was a, you know, some prince asking for some yeah. money that they'd send it to me right away. <laughs> and those, to the point, and those you know, are now super sophisticated. And there are so many of those kind of plots that, that get out there that are really taking a lot of money from people because they look so sophisticated and so real. And that's the same with the disinformation and the bots that are out there on social media. They really do look real. And, you, and many of the, the faces, for instance, and LinkedIn has been dealing with this, are basically made through you know, deep fake technology to you know, manipulation of the faces. And that, again, there's now, there, but in contrast, there's also now starting to be detectors, open source detectors to identify if some of those pictures or videos have been manipulated. And so it is a, sort yeah. of like a cat and mouse, very similar to what it was in, a, you know, is in, in the cyber you know, attack domain. And, and who, which country do, do you think? And we'll get into the causes of it in, in a little while, but can you give some examples of what some countries are are doing to combat digital authority? Yeah. What, what are the, the new techniques or the new offices or the new personnels that have been set up around the world to combat this? Yeah, you know, some, some, some countries are starting to implement uh, their own you know, sort of counter-disinformation component uh, within the government. I'd say what company, our countries have done really well are many of the former uh, Soviet countries, and it's because they've right. been they you know, have the history of understanding how, to, how you know, first what was coming, so they understood what was what they were getting targeted with, and they were able to create better defenses against that. And so you do see like Estonia, I think, is just such a good example for your broader imp implementation of you know K through twelve education about uh, you know, various kinds of disinformation, as well as uh, building out the cyber attacks um, defenses as well, and. Many of those countries really are the ones that have taken the lead. I mean, you could argue it's easier there in a more in a smaller society than you have such as in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from that. Um, I think just as far as just data protection and data integrity writ large, you, I think the GDPR is leading the way. Uh, there really isn't any other kind of data protection, data privacy law out there that can serve as that counterpunch to digital authoritarianism like the GDPR. And we've seen 
you know, from Brazil to Japan, um, then many states in the U.S., the uh, California uh, Privacy Act yeah. has taken parts of it. They're, they aren't mirroring every aspect of it, but they're taking parts of it and, and customizing them for their own you know, legal stature. So I'd say that those are really the big ones. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, the U.S. really has lagged behind a fair amount. Uh, many of our laws are, are 30, 40 years old that deal with various kinds of technology. Uh, I, I'm hopeful that that may change sometime soon, but we really do need the counterweight because it gets it to the point where if digital authoritarianism is able to be that model of choice for so many governments out there, and if other governments are seeing that they can have some success by leveraging those malign tactics, they may adopt them if there is not a counterweight to, to or, or counter model to fill that gap as well. And we see that with India, unfortunately. There, India has you know, been targeted quite a bit with disinformation and they kind of are going you know, a little bit of the democracy level and trying to get some data privacy in there, but then there's also disinformation and uh, it's really a good example of where you see sort of the, the push and pull of the various models going on right now. And, and I think right now, when we talk about combating disinformation, it's pretty much a public sector task, right? That is there much private sector involvement in, I mean, obviously, they, the traditional cybersecurity firms, of course, we buy their software, it protects us. But from that element of digital authoritarianism, which is the proliferation of or the weaponization of misinformation, that's a government problem, right? What does it take for the private sector to get involved with, with that problem? Yeah, well, I mean, one hand, the private sector is, is very uh, heterogeneous, right? So I'm, I'm parts of it. Are doing a fair amount like to your point on the vendors many of the vendors the cyber vendors now are also producing white papers and research as well on disinformation campaigns and i think that that becomes very helpful and the more they're doing some of that which again they weren't doing i'd say five years ago but then you know a lot of it is are the big tech platforms for the private sector and that's really where at the end of the day a lot of what can be done will be done via those big tech platforms the rest of the private sector i think probably has an incentive to ensure more of the the accurate information is out there, but it's really the, the big tech companies that are going to be the ones responsible for a lot of it. And that's what we've seen. And we've seen, on the one hand, a big shift following 2016 in the United States, where big tech prior to that was against you know, any kind of you know, government interference, against every kind of regulation, that everything was fine, they, they, their platforms had no impact on any kind of societal changes. And yeah. we really saw from 2016, I, I used to have a slide that showed comments made you know, 2015 to 2016 by the same executives as that were made 2017 and 18. And it's a complete switch for, well, I think you know, maybe some regulation is okay. Uh, <laughs> and what you see with that switch, though, is that they want to also have a, a big impact in it. And in many cases, instead of raising the bar to what, what they want, you know, having they basically want to have a bigger impact and keeping the bar low for whatever regulations coming in to ensure that, you know, it, hurts their bottom line, you know, in a, yeah. as a small way as possible. And, and I think that's a really good point because you saw from, I think, around 2018 until, you know, now, there was that change from the platform, from the social media companies, where they went from not wanting any interference to actually putting advertisements in The Economist every week, calling for regulation, right? Almost asking the policymakers to tell them what the rules were and to give them some guidance and regulation. So like you but said- But also we're lobbying behind the scenes against it, right? It was, exactly. it was playing both sides. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, well, we can't do anything about it. We're playing to the rules. Tell us what the rules are and then we'll, we'll sort it out. But at the same time in Washington, lobbying to say, hey, don't touch this stuff, leave us alone. It's a crazy, it's a really crazy situation. 
But right after, I mean, and that's the, the digital authoritarian piece is, is, is not only very scary, it's very real and very proven. But right after you had written that piece that, that I saw, Andrea, you wrote another piece about collective resilience, which is almost the antithesis for digital authoritarianism. Explain, uh, explain your, uh, your notion of collective resilience, if you could. Yeah, sure. And I'll say, you know, what I kind of put forth in collective resilience was building upon a lot of the different research and, and work from you know, DHS, you know, CISA, for instance, but really focusing on, on this notion, you know, back to the point on how interdependent all the societies are, that you, we're only going to be able to combat the cyber attacks, the disinformation, the automation that's enabling all this kind of malicious activity uh, through a whole society approach. And so it's going to take the government in collaboration with the private sector, in collaboration with individuals and, and society itself to come together and have a strength and unity. And it's not by any stretch, you know, this Pollyanna-ish view. It's really within a realist lens that for you know, all these different entities, they're only going to be as strong as the weakest link within their, with their suppliers, with their partners, any company organization that they're connected to. They need to ensure that those who they interact with within you know, their own network also needs to make sure that they're following your know, proper cybersecurity defenses and that they're out there basically being good advocates for you know, accurate information and, and so forth. And that's where I think the approach comes in because for, especially in cybersecurity for a while, it was, oh, we're just gonna focus on, the, on the, our own perimeter. And then, then it's then transferred to the perimeter is dead. And that's with the, with the cloud. And now what we really need to do is take it even a step further and really look at our own security is, is integrated and tightly tied with those of our partners, our suppliers. And then from the government level, it's tightly integrated with like-minded countries across the globe. And that's really what we've seen with you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think Russia underestimated how much the like-minded countries, the, the democracies of the world would unify. And on the one hand, they had strong reason for that. We saw a lot of disagreements that had gone on prior to that, but we've seen a sea change in policy toward this notion of collective resilience over the last month as democracies have come together, working together, sharing information in just unprecedented ways. It wasn't the governments alone, though, right? The private sector, we've seen over 400 companies withdraw from the Russian economy. And so it really is taking all of those different as aspects together on top of you know, volunteer hacker groups to go after. You know, that's where the individuals in the, in the security community is also playing a role to both provide defenses for the Ukrainians and then go on the offense against Russia. So it's just, it's really, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's a horrific example, but it, it is illustrative of, of how the collective resilience is that whole society has to come together toward the better good of, of you know, democracy and civil liberties and uh, you know, national and economic security for everyone. And, and even in your article, it, it goes even one step beyond that as well, where even banning the autocracies, or in this instance, Russia, from things like the World Cup or the, or, or the uh, Olympic Games or whatever it is, needs to happen to combat the perpetrators of, of digital authoritarianism. But this begs another question and something we, we didn't put in, our, in our, our question, something that I read in The Economist, and, and you mentioned it there, was uh, is the exposure to the supply chains we rely on in the West I mean, that's because of globalization. That's because we now trade with the autocracies that prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, we typically wouldn't be that interlinked with, right? So the notion is, 
should the democracies of the world that are are pulling together now in this collective resilience, should we be so reliant on these commodities and supply chains from these anti-democratic, autocratic governments? Yeah, I think, you know, on the one hand, I want to say it's not necessarily, you know, all or none, um, but I think the dependence needs to decrease. And we saw that, you know, to your point again, you know, on the trade wars and then on COVID, for sure, COVID just illustrated just dependence on one country alone, you know, regardless of, you know, authoritarianism, human rights violations, um, just in general, that hyper-dependence on one geographic area caused a lot of problems. And so just at, a low, at the lowest level of, having to diversify becomes really important, but then we take it a step further, really making sure that you're building out those trusted networks because it has proven, you know, what we just, you know, what we're seeing right now is that, you know, of those 400 firms that have withdrawn from Russia, for instance, their assets are now at risk of nationalization and probably some data is at risk as well because it was in Russia. And many companies are also rethinking their footprint in China. You know, similar to COVID, it's accelerating trends that were already there. There was a lot of supply chain reshoring, onshoring, um, and the, sort of the new, newest term is ally shoring. And I think that is, you know, gets back to the, that notion that instead of having you know, all of your hyper-dependence in, in one area, that you reshore to areas that are among like-minded countries. And I think that's a really important point because it doesn't necessarily mean everyone, you know, a whole protectionist front where everyone goes back to you know, the 1930s because we saw that is not, that, that's not how we want the world to progress. We yeah. are stronger together among like-minded nations and there could be areas where when there is you know, sort of a common purpose where that trade with some of those regimes may make sense. Because um, on the one hand, especially in, with regard to China, it's, it's going to take a very, very long time to disentangle that. And so yeah. I think thinking about what the priorities would be, such as those that are you know, national security, economic security, some of those commodities would be the core areas to start first focus on. But at the same time, you know, there is still that notion that you know, exposure of democratic societies within those authoritarian regimes is beneficial for ideally you know, spreading more democracy. And I think many relied on that a little too strongly for you know, the, the last several decades, but I don't think you know, complete isolationism is, is the answer either. And I think, yeah, that's, you know, the moral standpoint of it is that globalization has lifted so many people out of poverty, right? Even if they live in autocratic regimes, then that's sometimes a price maybe worth considering. But I thought it was really interesting what Joe Biden said in his recent State of the Union address, which included a promise that everything from the deck of an aircraft carrier to the steel on highway guardrails is made in America from beginning to end, all of it is, and I thought that was a really pretty unambiguous quote or a thing to say. But I think he's probably playing a bit of politics there with the disruption in the in in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, I would think so. I mean, it's you know a lot easier said than done for you know as a lot of things are, and I'd argue you know, you the, all those parts not don't necessarily have to be in the U.S. What about amongst our NATO allies, for instance, or other forms of allies? And that's again where the where the partnerships and the new alliance structures, I think, are just going to be increasingly important because those alliance structures also can be where those economic ties go. Uh, and, and that can help achieve the same end without you know, pure isolationism. And, and do you think you know, when we talk about 
you talked about it before with the private sector solution will need to come from the platforms in many respects has the west have those companies and we don't need to name them we know who they are we know who they are but have they enabled this digital authoritarianism so we talked about globalization being one component that has you know made the the supply chains vulnerable but ha- have uh, the western tech giants in many respects created this digital authoritarianism and you know the metaphor i can't get out of my head when i think of this is the sorcerer's apprentice uh, from fantasia when mickey mouse is putting the wall you know when the buckets get out of control and he's got the yeah, i don't know why but what's your, what, what, maybe it's just me but what what's your uh, what's your take on that how, how much is the facebook's uh, the twitters of the world responsible for what we're seeing right now yeah, you know, on the one hand, you know, it, all, like all technology or majority of technology, there's a dual use component to it. And we can highlight, you know, and this is exactly sort of the, the talking points of a lot of the, these big tech companies is look at all the good we've done in the world. And there's a lot that they can point to in that regard, as far as you know, spreading information, being able to do, you know, making, you know, working at home and, uh, you know, education through home accessible through some of those platforms and access to that information. And so I, I think there is a lot of good that can be done, but by allowing, and I actually even argue by ignoring just so much of the societal impact, it did allow it to grow out of control. But I would also say, I mean, they're, they're, especially authoritarian governments, we're already going to be leveraging social media in that regard, whether it's on any of the U.S. platforms or their own platforms as well. You know, propaganda has been around. Russia has mastered propaganda for you know, centuries. <laughs> the, the, the government yeah. has. But they, yeah. they did enable to amplify. And with Facebook having a customer list or user list that's bigger than you know, every country, in, in the globe, I think that for sure obviously has that that broader impact. It's part of the story, but not all the story for enabling digital authoritarianism. You know, when we first uh, spoke um, about this podcast last week, Andrew, you were you were reading the Ugly Truth, right? The book um, by Cindy Can and uh, uh, Sheila Frankel, yeah, and Sheila Frankel, yeah. And it's it's a it's a, an amazing book. We actually talked about it last week when we were in um, we were in Arizona. But after reading that. What's your view on existing legislation regarding policing those platforms? Particularly, the one you know, the one that piece that comes up all the time is Section Two Hundred and Thirty of the Communication Decency Act. What, what's your thoughts on that whole argument? Yeah, you know, on the one hand, I'll say I'm a hundred percent not a lawyer, so <laughs> we'll, we'll give that as, as as my my caveat. But um, by giving the, the social media platforms basically the safe harbor against legal liability for any content that's on the platforms, it did enable them to forever say, you know, not my problem. It's not what we're here to do. But when you see time and again, what we saw in Myanmar, for instance, is a good example we see in Brexit, 2016 elections, just enabling all those really significant shifts going on. You know, there really is, you know, it needs to be some level of responsibility, but you know, all this has been building up for a while. I mean, if you go back to, you know, again, going back over a decade-ish to Gamergate, where so many women were targeted with a lot of the same kind of disinformation and trolls and attacks, uh, they've known about this for a while. Like this isn't necessarily something that's new. So it's clear that their behavior still, you know, probably won't change until some of the incentive structure changes. So I do think something along the lines of augmenting it to, you know, some level of basic, you know, duty of care rule, so that they are responsible for anything that may create some serious harm. And that's where you know, the legal ease will have to come in, you know, what defines legal like, you know, serious harm and so forth, integrating aspects of hate speech, because I, I, you know, I know from personal experience, you know, the things that are said against women, 
basically if you get re if you report them they get they basically get ignored for a lot of the cases whereas that's not necessarily true across all groups so there really does need to be some consistency over but who determines what is that that basic duty of care um, in the US we have the, you know, the first amendment and protections for speech um, I know you know, New Zealand has passed different different laws for some some components on really limiting what can be said and what can't. You know, Germany also has a very different take on it. And it's going to need to be you know, country by country specific as well within the culture to find that right balance. Because we do, we do. We want, you want to enable freedom of speech, that becomes very important, but you really need to fight both just the, the disinformation that's out there and then also that the hate speech. I think those are some of the biggest challenges that are there and it's not gonna no. be a one size fits all. No, no. And it, what baffles me about it is that the legislation that exists in the United States was passed under President Bill Clinton at the beginning of the internet, right? It was a fledgling yeah. internet. And this was thought up and, and, and passed into law, you know, tw over 20 years yeah. ago. And it's, it's crazy that it's taken some of the things we've discussed to even be under the microscope, right? It, it really yeah. is. Uh, no, it's uh, taken very extreme. And then it, similarly, you know, even go back a decade before, and that's a Computer Fraud and, and Abuse Act, right? So that, that's you know, during when war games, <laughs> I think, around yeah. the same time. And you know, clearly technology has changed since then. So we, we are very well, like long overdue in the United States for you know, privacy protections and for updates of our basic internet regulations. But at the same time, I, I think, and correctly, many are, are fearful that you know, there are many in our Congress that may not understand the implications of, of the nuances of a lot of it. And so we really do need to make sure that that's you know, almost to the point of what can the private sector do for the rest of the private sector. The private sector can play really a big role in uh, providing the education and providing the guidance on what may be needed in those areas, separate from the big tech, but the other forms, yeah. uh, other parts of the tech, the tech sector that can provide those insights onto what may work well. And especially all the NGOs that are out there that are pro big proponents of you know, privacy protections and so forth. And you've just reminded me of that clip that went viral on social media when Zuckerberg, when Mark Zuckerberg got when he was on Capitol Hill being questioned by uh, all the politicians and the lawmakers and some of the questions he was being asked, I, I, I think I w if I said they were rudimentary, I would be being rather generous. Well, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. So I think, yeah, you're right. That ability of the private sector to educate the policymakers uh, might help expedite things. Now, let, let's talk about um, national security and how you assess cyber risks. Tell us about a security scorecard that has been developed. What, what, what factors do you take into account to assess a cyber risk? And, in, and indeed, it's a fact on society and supply chains. Yeah, and you know, again, it's, it's one of those areas where there's so many different things that need to be considered, but I do think it's, it's there's, you know, models are simplifications of reality. So there are ways to provide that. And for the most part, for the cyber realm, there's been a just big focus on what the firms are doing. And, and, and understandably, that's a core part of it. Are, are they implementing multi-factor authentication? Are they leveraging encryption? You know, sort of the, the basic cyber hygiene. And that's all needs to remain a, a core component of it. But there are a lot of other factors that, as we've discussed, increasingly come into play, such as uh, the, the, basically the, the global footprint of companies and where they are, which countries are they in. Because you know, in addition to you know, sort of what I talked about as far as the cyber attacks and disinformation automation, what a lot of the digital authoritarians also are doing are implementing legal reforms on the data, their own basically internet policies that enable data access within their own sovereign territory. And when you couple that with data localization and data storage requirements, 
uh, just to, as the cost of doing business in those countries, there's a lot of risk to that data. And it, and it may not be your, your headquarters, uh, but it could be either you know, a subsidiary or it could be suppliers that have access to your data. And that provides you know, yet another area of risk. And that's where, on the one hand, you have the GDPR, which is providing those protections for the, the individual data in the, that's being used for the individuals. Whereas other, the flip side of that is data protection for governments and the data protection that enables the government, generally under the auspice of national security, to access the data. And that's even in this to the point, you know, Australia has their law that weakened encryption to enable government access. So it's not all authoritarians that are doing it, but I think integrating those components of risk is just increasingly important. And I think is a facet that is, has been overlooked for quite some time. Um, but again, I, I think the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, sadly is highlighting what some of those data risks might be by having your larger you know, corporate footprint in foreign countries. So let's go back We're at the beginning, right at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the un, you know, unprecedented levels of supply chain disruption over the last 10 years, you know, and, and with the pandemic and now this war in the Ukraine. How has technology assisted supply chain during these times? Because when, when we spoke uh, uh, last week, Andrew, you talked about an acceleration of supply chain evolution, if you will. Give us a bit of an insight on your thoughts on, on how that's come to be and, and some examples. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, I mean, we really are seeing just that acceleration. You know, sort of again, back to the point where 2020 is a cutoff in, between trends that were already there, but you know, much slower, and then just the acceleration of them. And, and I think one really is the, the integration of technology to understand new aspects of what's going on in the world, but also the aspect for communication, obviously, and just major transformations and connecting people in ways when we couldn't connect otherwise. But then also just you know, gaining visibility across what the global, your global supply chain may look like. Very often we think of you know, your Walmarts and Amazons of the world that have the logistics down. And that's, you know, that's a very essential point, and I think that's going to continue. But technology also is playing a very big role in understanding your business relationships and understanding where your global footprint is. Uh, for many companies, especially global brands, they've got you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of suppliers when you get into their you know, second, third, fourth tier. You know, it's just impossible to know what's going on, where they all are. Um, you know, what's their security posture? Are they in areas that may be hit by climate change? Are they under uh, various kinds of you know, government regulations that may provide access to data? And there's all sorts of risks. And so I think technology can come together and help provide a lot of insights into those kind of risks and surface what's going on and what's most important amongst all the, the chaos that's going on in the world. And so I yeah. think that can help a lot. And also moving quickly on the, in the areas of green technology, in the areas of like trucking routes and other kinds of basically the, the transportation aspects of supply chains that I think will be exciting to watch over the next decade. So you could, in, in many respects, come up with an equation to analyze how vulnerable your particular supply chain is as a corporate, right? You can say, so if I've got all my manufacturing in China, if I source all my nickel from Russia, if all my shipping comes from a shipping firm in um, Taiwan, you can put a pretty high risk on that, right? Being a, a risky so, so you can. So I mean, honestly, that's exactly what my team does. And so that's right. you know, my team. I pulled together folks from you know, NOAA who are climate scientists, along with people with backgrounds in you know, geopolitical instability and those that have backgrounds in economics. To, to, and I highlight that because it's a very multidisciplinary 
range of risks that are out there for supply chains. It's not, again, it requires so much different expertise to understand those risks, yeah. but you can, you can model those, you can quantify those and bring those together and help surface how those shocks may ripple throughout your supply chain as well. And there's a lot of you know, network ana analytics that you can apply if you think about your supply chain as a graph uh, or a web, and as opposed to just one single chain. There's yeah. just a lot you can do to absolutely help highlight the critical nodes and the risk and, and couple of that and overlay that with those risks, those, those shocks that are going on in yeah. the world. Because and, and it leads me into my next question nicely because some things can be anticipated or you could put a risk factor on them or odds on them, if you will, particularly around political stability or commodities. Um, but some things like the pandemic have come out of nowhere, right? And, and it's difficult to really know. But the one thing we definitely know about right now that's going to have huge impacts on society, on supply chain, is climate change uh, and sustainability. So how disruptive to supply chains is climate change right now? And, and, and what do we expect moving forward? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I will say on the, on the one hand, just real quick, on the, on the pandemic front, though, I think a lot of the, the annual intel briefs will tell you I always had pandemics in there. And they, oh, really? they, they were often ignored. Um, and a lot of epidemiologists have, have been warning about that, but you know, they were similarly ignored. And I, to your point on, on memes, there are many memes that are basically showing like climate scientists now saying, like now the, you know, the health workers, epidemiologists understand how you know, climate scientists have felt for a while. Um, they've been shouting yeah. about these issues, but no one's listening. And you know, somewhere on, on the climate front, you know, that we've seen these disruptions ongoing for a while, and especially in the supply chain industry. Sort of the, the um, example that is used very, very often is uh, Toyota. And back in about a decade ago, about 2011-ish, when the tsunami hit Japan, Toyota's supply chain really was just dramatically disrupted. And they used that as a learning experience to build out a lot of things we talked about as far as you know, building out resilience, diversifying, gr creating greater agility. Um, and so forth. And so we are, you know, that was a decade ago. And since then, we've conti continued to see events, but you know, ones that are you know, relatively recent are you know, the floods in China, absolutely had an impact on, you know, automotive and coal. We saw the Texas um, freeze from last year with a plastic shortage. You know, we, we've seen just, you know, that the wildfires in California have had an impact, you know, even in areas such as, you know, closing roads. So it's again, disrupting logistics lines that are going on. Um, areas hit by drought are also causing you know, major problems. So it really is, you know, it's already here and it is going, you know, sadly, you know, absent any major changes of, of you know, human behavior is going to continue to have a very big impact. And so those organizations that are more forward leaning, so you can, you're not going to predict, you know, is tomorrow going to be that, you know, are you going to get hit by a hurricane? But there's that big probability that you can look at what that risk is going to be, where you're located um, and what the propensity is for those kind of different natural disasters to occur and look at those and look at where your supply chain is to start anticipating where there's a, a greater likelihood of disruption to come. But it is something that's going to be on the radar for quite some time. And, and those organizations that better prepare for resilience against that, I think will be the ones that will fare better during the next freeze, the next wildfire, the next drought yeah. and so forth. And so whilst you can do a really accurate job at modeling, you know, modeling the effect that various climatic incidents will have on the supply chain, are any corporates making you know dramatic changes and tweaks to the supply chain in the eventuality of certain things so for example if you had all your manufacturing in the netherlands which is in the low country in the lowlands is that deemed more susceptible to flooding therefore we should uh move our manufacturing to i don't know somewhere high up <laughs> like nepal <laughs> I, 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 I don't know have, have you seen corporates actually start to 
fact yeah. that they've seen already. I have, and I, I think I think it goes hand in hand with the discussions about your reshoring and building better resilience, you know, geographically for their supply chains. Those discussions are already ongoing, you know, largely driven by by China. But then the the climate change component becomes yet another factor to consider in those discussions. And it absolutely is. If they're thinking about where they're reshoring, they don't want to reshore to an area that's hit by floodplains or that's going to be prone to wildfires or that is very prone to use this, or is, you know, right on the you know below sea level and so forth. So I do think that those those conversations are happening. Uh, companies are making decisions based on that already. Uh, it, but it's not going to happen overnight, right? You're moving or finding a new workforce, finding a new building, those kind of things you know, really do take a significant amount of time. So it's not, you can't just turn the switch and do it, but those discussions are underway. And you know, we've done some different surveys where both near and you know, medium term planning are priorities for adjusting to the, what's coming in the, in the climate change area. And so this is a nice question, hopefully a bit more positive, because it always feels like a dire situation, and it is actually. I shouldn't down, down uh, downplay it with with climate change. And but can technology be the savior of the some of the current supply chain issues we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, so whenever I think about technology, I always think about the humans involved as well. So I, I, I always want to make sure to include both of those because technology alone won't be the savior, but how humans use the technology can be. And I do think that we can see a lot of just interesting integration and innovative integration of humans and technology to really do an awful lot in this area. And you know, I sort of alluded to some of it, but like um, some of the green tech and the innovations coming in the green technology, I think can do, uh, you have, have you know, a very big impact. You know, some of the reshoring that's going on is, is made possible due to changes and shifts in technology to enable it to still be cost effective to create you know, various kinds of, you know, some of the warehouses and various other parts of the supply chain closer to home. So I think that can be there um, for optimization, you know, just to, to prevent as many resources being wasted. That's where some of the big data analytics can come into play. And so I am, I am very hopeful. I, I don't think we can do it alone without technology. I think for sure, I think technology has to play a role in it. And the more that we can, you can get to areas where you're incentivizing innovation in those areas becomes so, so important. I mean, if you remember, yeah, you know, we'll stick on the, on the theme of memes. Memes. You know, for a while, you know, that, that it was the notion that you know, the, the smartest minds of the generation were trying to get people to click on you know another ad, right? And that was sort of the philosophy that and mindset that was dominant for quite some time. And we are seeing that shift. I mean, I, I, I do a fair amount of work just talking to students in college, and a lot of what they're looking for now is more so having that impact and leverage. And how can you, they leverage technology for the greater good? And so that's that whole movement toward tech for good. I think really, yeah. really, one, it's exciting to see uh, the next generation coming in. It makes me very, very hopeful every time I talk to them. No, and you know, it's a really good point and a really nice positive point as we start to come to the end. But even speaking to our customers who are service providers, the big service providers, that is, and we met so many people in Los Angeles back in um, October. But now technology, it, it's not just about, you know, like you said, just tech for the sake of tech and more tech and competitiveness and, and profits. But there's an almost inherent obligation of the big tech companies and service providers to look after the society that they serve. Right. Because um, and I think that's I think that's something we see with every uh, certainly with every service provider in, in North America, for sure. Uh, so, Andrea, what's next for you? What are you working on next? Because I've loved reading about. <laughs> Uh, digital authoritarianism. I've loved uh, reading about uh, collective resilience. What's the next big thing you're working on right now? Yeah, I mean, those are going to you know, remain some of the core trends. Um, 
largely since they're they're still just so dominant. And I I really do want to you continue to you know, sort of spread the word about collective resilience and and get more folks on board to thinking about you know their supply chains that way, but as well as the sort of the broader good of of society and national security. And you know, on top of that, really honing in on just the notion that what this new normal is going to be. And again, that's something that I've talked about now for several years, you know, since, really since you know, the pandemic kicked off. And for a while, I think many people kind of just you sort of entertained it, but brushed it aside. But the more that I can help organizations of all kinds, private sector, public sector, so forth, really internalize just how different this world order is that we're, that, that is already here and is going to continue to um, shift and help them prepare for that, I, th I think the better off we are. So I, a lot of work along those lines and all those really do at the end of the day fall under the broader umbrella of uh, you know, enhancing democracy, protecting democracy. And I do think you know, supply chains are a core component to it. Cybersecurity is a core component to it. Uh, countering disinformation is, is a core component to it. All these different aspects are just so tightly inter intertwined. All of that's going to keep me very busy for quite some time, I imagine. Excellent. Well, I'll be following, I'll be following um, your work, Andrew, because I think it's fascinating and I've loved reading some of your, uh, your latest pieces. So that's great. Now we're going to finish with our quick fire round called TGI to go. Now uh, we've done this several times already this season. This will give our listeners a, a, a glimpse uh, of your personality, Andrea, and uh, very two, very simple, multiple choice. All you do is call out your preference. All right. So you ready for TGI to go? I guess so. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. TGI to go. TGI to go. Question number one, cats or dogs? So I have two cats, so I'll stick with that. But I grew up with a dog, okay. so. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Question number two, the New Yorker or the economist? Uh, economist. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember Do you remember when we met in, um, in Seattle in 2019, Ludwig Siegel was there from the economist. And he was chairing, if I remember, a panel on cybersecurity. So, um, yeah, so he'll be pleased with that there answer. You go. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Singing or dancing? Oh, gosh, neither. <laughs> I can't, I can't yeah. do either. <laughs> Here's one a little bit more business related ATT, Verizon, or T Mobile? Oh, I mean, so I use T Mobile for one and Verizon for something else. Yeah. I'm divided on that. The Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial? Uh, Lincoln. The Baltimore Orioles or the Washington Nationals? Oh, Boston Red Sox. I grew up in Maine. Ah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, so did, so did Larissa. So you're a Red Sox. Because we picked out two local teams, obviously, <laughs> from where you live right now. But if you're yep. a Red Sox fan. No, nope, and uh, yeah, and Red Sox brilliant. fans are Red, so Red Sox fans for life. So all, all Boston teams. Excellent. Excellent. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Whoa. Maine or Colorado? Oh, no. Oh. Probably say Maine. That's a tough one. Probably you went Maine. to university in Colorado. I did. Yeah, I love Colorado. Those are basically my two favorite spots. Yeah, I grew up in Maine, went to college in Maine, but then grad school in Colorado, and both are amazing. But Maine has the mountains and the ocean, so that's okay. And the lobster. And the lobster, absolutely. Yeah. American history or economics? Uh, probably American history. Yeah. Cool. And did you finish the Ugly Truth yet? I just finished. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's a great book. They're making a movie about it, I believe. Oh, are well. they really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's not terribly surprising. Yeah. Um, Reading or writing? 
both. Uh, I probably spend more time writing now. Well, actually, I spend yeah, equal. I mean, yeah. I read a lot and then I write about what I read. <laughs> that's, that's part of my job. <laughs> I always have to have a British reference in these questions. Okay. The CIA or the MI6? Oh. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I got it. I got to go with CIA. Although I, I like reading a lot of the uh, the history of the MI6. Those yeah. are those are fun. The Maldives or the Virgin Islands? Oh, I've never been to either, but I really would like to go to the Maldives. It's nice. I had my honeymoon in the Maldives. Actually, oh, it's yeah, it looks nice. amazing. Before climate change exactly. uh, takes it away from us, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, when we going back to the subject of reading, John Le Carre or Jason Matthews? Oh, you know, I, I probably have read more of John Lecurse, so I'll go with that one. Ah. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, right? That's the <laughs> famous one. Yep. Um, Prague or Budapest? Well, I've been to Prague and I liked that a lot, so I'll, I'll go with that. But I've never okay. been to Budapest, but I would like to someday. I, I, I'm a Prague guy with those two cities. I love Prague. It's very nice. And then the last one, and I'll ask you this one, and then you can I'll tell you the reason for this question. <laughs> okay. Interior design or technology? technology oh that's good that's why you're on this podcast <laughs> my interior design is awful yeah. i think any of my friends would tell you that when they come in i just i don't prioritize it I, i'm about functionality because the reason is if you do a search for the great indoors on any of the podcast outlets there's a chance you get the interior design podcast which <laughs> you, right. you know it's a little plug for them there little plug no problem with that um <laughs> So that's brilliant. That concludes the TGI to go around. But thank you very much, Andrew. That was lots of fun. And look, I just want to say thank you for joining the show today. It's been a, an amazing conversation. And before I stop, is there anything else you'd like to, to add or say to our listeners? And no, I mean, just, you know, thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I really enjoyed it. And what I love a lot about your podcast is, is highlighting just the role that technology can play in, in these solutions. I think we really... You know, you can get bogged down so much on some on negativity because there is just so much going on. It's overwhelming. Uh, by focusing on, on some of the good that's coming and amplifying that, I, I just think is important for all of our mental health, but also just for our optimism about looking forward. You know, I don't think we've ever done an episode where we discuss the interconnectivity of so many topics before, from economics, globalization, cybersecurity, geopolitics, supply chain disruption, and climate change. Just a great discussion. And you know what I love the most, and I think what we can take away from this episode is that despite these incredibly troubling times caused by this digital authoritarianism, there is a solution. And Andrea's notion of collective resilience by governments, private corporations, and citizens from like-minded countries come together as the counterpoint to this digital authoritarianism. What a great episode. So please subscribe to our podcast and all the usual podcast channels. Leave a re review or rating if you feel so inclined. It certainly helps us. Check out two other Amdocs podcasts that are brilliant and available now. The Future of Tech with Abishai Sharlin and Points of View with our CMO, Gil Rosen. Also visit our website amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors where we have a cornucopia of assets and past episodes of the great indoors for your delight and delectation. Now we'll be back in two weeks for another edition of the great indoors. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto. Have a great day wherever you are.